So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at ButcherBox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Spending way too much time on social media? Derek here from Conspirituality, and you might be able to break the cycle of doom scrolling on Elon Musk's haunted Twitter by tuning into the Crooked Media podcast Offline with John Favreau. I have been a Crooked Media fan since the company was founded, and I'm really excited to be talking about Offline because it's a different kind of Sunday show. It's a chance to step outside our social media fueled news cycles and hear smarter, lighter conversations about how chronically online existence shapes the way that we live, work, and interact with the world around us. Each week, John Favreau is joined by notable guests like Stephen Colbert, Hassan Piker, ContraPoints, Margaret Atwood, what? All for intimate conversations about how to live happier, healthier lives, both on and offline. New episodes of Offline with John Favreau drop every Sunday, wherever you get your podcasts. Spirituality. I'm Derek Barris. I'm Matthew Rumsky. I'm Julian Walker. Hello, I'm Dale Baran. Okay, Dale, we are going to get into your book today. I'm looking forward to this. You can stay in touch with us and up to date with us at Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, all of our channels, as well as on Patreon at patreon.com slash conspirituality, where for $5 a month, you can help support us as well as get access to our Monday bonus episodes. Conspirituality 62, Manifesting Something Awful with Dale Baran. The Genius Parade continues this week with co-host Dale Baran, author of It Came From Something Awful, How a Toxic Troll Army Accidentally Memed Donald Trump Into Office. All three of us writers are legit blown away by Baran's layered and penetrating coverage of the Chan verse to Capitol Riot pipeline. After last week's journey led by Dr. Annie Kelly through the anti-feminism of the high testosterone sites that prepped cyberspace for QAnon, Baran takes us deep into the cosplayed souls of the man-child nihilists who created an online politics of chaos and served it up to the MAGA movement. Equal parts deep internet history, social psychology, and critique of late capitalism Baran's lamentation to based and wasted youth still manages to hold out some hope for the future somehow, and we're going to ask him why. 
thanks so much for uh, taking the time, Dale. It was an extraordinary book. We're really excited to talk with you about it. Sure, yeah. Thank you for having me. I think Matthew read it a little while ago, but Derek and I have both been listening to the Audible version over the last week or so. And so uh, I, I know I can speak for myself. I'm deeply immersed in all of this. Um and, and have had your, your voice in my ear for the last several days for multiple hours. So it's nice to see you in person. <laughs> yeah, uh, great to be here. Um, thank you so much for reading the book. That is uh, often more than many interviewers do. So that's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been listening to it on my, and I'm not an audiobook person, but Matthew suggested it. And I was really happy you read it because you bring life to it, which is great. Sometimes audiobooks are tough for me because it's someone who isn't the author reading it. And it's very dry, but you, you give a lot of life to it. But I'll chime in and say that there are so many takes on this history that we've looked at, and I mean, not just we as a podcast, but as a society about the evolution of where we landed at Donald Trump as the president. And yours really pointed out aspects that I had not thought of. And you made a clear history along the lines from Stuart Brand to Donald Trump, which is something I've often thought about that early 70s uh, you know, this is very much in line with this podcast of the wellness people moving into tech spaces and then moving to the right. And even the way, and I know we'll get into this, that you describe how it moves from progressive spaces to the far right through the technology was really succinct and amazing. So thank you for that. We've got a lot of detailed questions and to save some legwork off the top, uh, I've got a pretty tight synopsis of your book, and I hope that helps situate us, but also the listeners squarely uh, in your world. So uh, it came from Something Awful is like a double entendre title because it both names one of the earliest, mostly young male internet forums that took their lead from the Anon boards in Japan, uh, which was called Something Awful, but also it pegs the origins of the MAGA movement's deep web infrastructure in this real clusterfuck of aggrieved, inflammatory, ironic, self-isolating users that yearned to tear everything about their hypocritical and imprisoning world down, uh, even as they knew they were somehow keeping it alive with their demoralized consumerism and, and gaming. Um, and you lead readers through this like really messy development of that infrastructure until we have a history of the underbelly of the internet and we're able to connect the dots in this kind of parade of online ecosystems that are all trying to out-disrupt each other. So from something awful to the boards of 4chan to, um, you know, subreddits to 8chan to WizardNet and incel groups, all of them share this form uh, in which users both hide themselves through anonymity, but they also like really overshare their most intimate anxieties. And they create this new form of cathartic agitprop, the meme, which just completely scuppers every rule of cultural exchange and political discourse with its you know, reductive cruelty that can always be disclaimed as ironic. Like you, you can't really know what the memer believes. So it's a world in which there is no good faith and you really track how it leads to a presidency devoid of good faith. Um, and then like two other things I'll say is that, you know, the flesh on that historical skeleton 
really comes through your study of the psychopolitics of late capitalism as it soaks in this online acid. And one aspect of this is that you spend a lot of time on the kind of bipolar dialectic at the heart of these competing online groups. So there's right versus left, men versus women, fascists versus communists, uh, those who yearn for meaning and those who deny it exists. Um, and, you know, the attacks and counterattacks come so fast and, and furious that the content is almost always lost. And, and then the last layer that you add, though, is possibly unifying or hopeful, because I think you point out that whatever the behaviors and the politics of the chancellors are, they share a kind of central despair that they have been betrayed by every promise offered by a counterculture that never follows through. Uh, they all watched punk, uh, grunge, gaming, and the internet itself get co-opted into this great corporate machine, and that machine collapses history into an, this never-ending sales pitch. So it offers everything from everywhere all at once on these flat screens without depth, and you write about this with a lot of poetry that is just really refreshing, uh, and, and no one really knows where they're from right, or where they're yes. going. Or where they came from, because as you point out, the Chan boards like delete themselves. <laughs> but um, in the end, you also propose that if there's hope in something awful, uh, it's in the honesty of those who inhabit it. Uh, they're kind of, they, you know, we have to say that they're in touch with their despair. And you write, quote, it's really only the first step in a long journey, recognizing one's own mis misery when the world insists that you ought to be content. So... I hope that's fair. I hope that that gives a good context for for going forward. Do you think was there anything I got wrong there, or that you want to clarify? That's a very beautiful summary. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, um, I loved it. It was a very uh, eloquent uh, summary of the whole of the whole book. <laughs> yes, I thought it was great. Good. Okay. Well, we hopefully we've landed then. Derek and Julian, what did you want to get into first? Well, I think an origin story is in order, uh, like because obviously this is a large undertaking to try to describe how message boards led to Donald Trump. So, what was the moment you realized you wanted to tackle this uh, topic? It happened um, by accident, a little bit, where I had been thinking about writing a piece on Fortune. This was before Donald Trump was elected, and I had I had tried to write about 4chan like in 2008, back when it had started becoming a political movement and protesting Scientology. Uh, right, right, it started to invent the internet meme. I'd gone to one of the protests, and it was just so weird because I was standing, as I describe in the book, like on a New York street corner where all of these internet kids were protesting this cult created by this. Uh, this dead science fiction author. Um, and it was just, there were so many layers of weirdness. I just couldn't, couldn't put it in words. <laughs> um, and then in 2016, um, as 4chan was pushed into the far right, um, they had actually been harassing artists. They, and uh, um, I, if you don't, if, if you recall, there was a fire at a place called ghost ship, which was like a, uh, an artist space and, and 4chan had already gone to the far right at that point And they resented these people who were on the left that were artists. And so they started harassing artists. This was before Trump got elected. And, and some of my friends actually got harassed. Um, and I was sort of trying to explain to one of my friends who was targeted by 4chan 
um, what 4chan was and how there were sort of these ridiculous nerds and like trying to kind of give the history that I eventually wrote. And I realized I was like, oh, people should probably know this. <laughs> um, so I ended up writing a piece. That I thought, you know, 200 people would read it or something. Uh, and it just went viral. Like it was right after Trump got elected, sort of anticipated a lot of the things that I guess happened shortly after um, with Trump and the Internet. Uh, and after that, then the sort of book just uh, spiraled out of control from there, <laughs> like so many other things on the Internet. That Scientology moment is really fascinating. I'd, I'd kind of uh, put a put a post-it on it because you describe the representative of the Church of Scientology in his silver iridescent suit standing on the steps, right? And he's gesturing towards this group of kids who are wearing the anonymous V for Vendetta masks, right. which you flag as like the first time this mask appears in real life, right? Breaking through the screen into the outside world. Right, yes. And then there you are equally kind of in, in some kind of role play, right? Because you have a notebook that says reporter's notebook on it, which you use to get past the police line. Right. So you can go and talk to the guy on the steps of the Scientology building who says, these are all terrorists. They're a terrorist organization and we, we're we protected by the First Amendment because we're a church or something like that, right? Right. Everyone, right? Yes. And then you, then you go and talk to the kids and the kids all give you inside joke trolling responses to any questions that you ask them. And so all of this is such a bizarre, surreal kind of postmodern moment of the internet making this incursion into the real world in this trollish kind of way. And yet it seems like we can draw lines from there, say to Charlottesville and perhaps even to the Capitol insurrection in terms of this trollish organizing. What, what how, how have you thought about that in hindsight? Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it was definitely a very weird moment where everyone was sort of lying to each other where, yeah, the Scientology guy didn't know who these, who these people were really where they were coming from. And he, yeah. he just automatically said that they were a terrorist organization. 4chan was lying about where it was from. It was saying, oh, I'm from Newgrounds or some kid's website. And I had, was never really, I wanted to be a reporter, wanted to be a writer. Um, and so I just had a notebook that said reporter's notebook. And that's, <laughs> that's I would, and even though I, all I knew was that I knew about 4chan, that's sort of all I knew. Um, so I was really a, a user in a sense, going to interview other users. It was very strange. And yes, it, it, I guess, sort of like heralded this now common thing that happens where the internet leaks into real life, where Charlottesville much later on, um, when the alt-right spawned off 4chan was also a manifestation of all these uh, internet memes and ideas and conflicts that were happening online kind of spilling out into real life. And it was sort of horrific when it happened because obviously it didn't translate in, into real life where a lot of these men thought they would look a certain way because they had been hyping themselves up with like nonsense fascist ideology online. And then they get there and they look ridiculous, right? When it comes into real life. And it's horrific um, as it sort of conflicts with like uh, how it actually uh how they imagine they are and how it actually appears. Um, so yeah, that's, um, uh, yeah. And, and now it's just sort of become a pattern where, uh, political movements coalesce this way. And then, and then sort of the border between real life and, and the internet, uh, kind of gets effaced. What's wild about it with Scientology is, is as an outsider who no who knew nothing about that online fringe kind of world at the time, I think t to me, and certainly to a lot of people I knew, it, it seemed like Anonymous was this, you know, sincere activist movement that was making a statement, right? right? And in some ways they did, they were choosing a sort of anti-corporate, there, there was a, there was an anti-corporate and anti-sort of exploitation angle they were taking. And yet 
you know, seeing it from the angle that you give us access to, it's like, oh, wow, this was, this was sort of the ultimate trolling event of its time. <laughs> there was an expression, I don't think this made it in the book, but there was sort of a common expression among anonymous that anonymous was anonymous's own worst enemy. <laughs> so it was always sort of like tearing itself apart. So there were, it started as this trolling movement and people who wanted to create mass pranks. Um, and then when all these kids were networked together, all these sort of young men were like, oh, well, we're kind of bullies. What's the biggest bully we can find? Um, at first, it's just a neo-Nazi online. Then it's they're like, oh, well, we defeated him. We added him as FBI informant. Then they're like, well, Scientology, that's a big bully. Maybe we can we can mess with them. And then after that happens and does fairly well, they're like, well, what about major corporations? What about the military industrial complex? Um, they're like, those are those big power structures that all of us as hackers hate and as young rebellious men hate. Um, and they make a sincere go at it. So then they do indeed become sincere. A lot of them sincere activists. And there's sort of a split between the old school trolls who are like, no, we're nihilist to the heart there's, we have no political agenda. And people are like, no, no, actually, I found agency in this. There's actually real power here. We can make an effect. Um, so that, you know, there was that uh, conflict in the group. But yeah, um, uh, yeah. So <laughs> it ultimately, um, it ultimately what happened was that they were pretending at first and then everyone believed them. So that mask became the face, right? Yeah. <laughs> they... Um, they realized that people, you know, they said, oh, we're an international hacktivist collective that is millions strong and, uh, and, and a secret shadowy society that is very powerful. And people loved that story. So that gave them power, right? Even if it was uh, just a bunch of message boards. Yeah. And so just the last thing here, because it, it's for me, it's so emblematic of, of the book is that there's this, there's almost this realization that I see you painting in, a, in an anthropological way that here's this new form of social experiment that reveals an enduring kind of human truth, right? That, if, that even if we're finding community through isolation and cruelty and helplessness and nihilism, somehow what evolves is a quest for meaning and power and agency and, and group identity, which is, is just... Yeah, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. That then, of course, spills over into the world, as you were just saying. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's true. That's a very nice uh, uh, takeaway. And I think, yeah, that's, that's what I tried to kind of get across in the book when all of these sort of young men got together, um, even this starting in the early 90s, right before 4chan on Something Awful, and then on 4chan, they started from a place of sort of deep nihilism um, where they're like, nothing matters. But that's sort of, you can't stay there long comfortably. It's like nature abhors a vacuum. It's that sort of idea where something needs, so they, they can only be nihilist for so long. And then suddenly they're back to like, well, how do we cobble together a value system? <laughs> how do we kind of build something? Because nothing, being in a place of nothing actually is not comfortable. Um, so you see them doing that over the years. So at first they sort of built this, um, anarcho kind of anarchist, anti-corporate, anti-power structure thing called anonymous. And then the FBI, when that was effective to some degree, the FBI arrested all of the main figures. And then in the vacuum that followed, there was again, a, a nihilism that then got built up into this sort of like, um, the delusion of, of fascism and sort of this like hatred towards modern society, um, or at least power structure, power structures or at least this idea that maybe they should attack the power structures from the far right. There's one more origin story question I want to ask 
because it'll lead into and I think unlock a lot of the of where we get to. And some of this is speculation on my end, but I would love to hear your your idea behind it because I don't think you touched upon this. But you, you do mention that in Japan, uh, Japanese kids that were focused on academics did not understand how to play. And they, they would have all of these fantasies of murdering their father or going and killing people. And th- because they were so focused, we'll say on STEM or STEAM sort of academia. And you paint a picture of people who, you know, you keep referencing uh, living in the mother's basement and such. But I wonder this phenomenon of these people who collect, they obviously are not socially attuned, especially with Gamergate and the misogyny that was happening there. Now, I grew up being bullied, but I was also constantly playing sports and with people around me, even the bullies, and there was real contact that happened. And whatever happened, it still made me a pretty well-adjusted adult. But you mentioned at one point that it seemed like these people are just kids stuck in adult bodies when you're talking about gamers specifically. So there's psychological or social traits that you've picked up, especially spending so much time in these spaces. And do you think that there are some, some traits that persist when it spills out into the real world that kind of disassociates them from reality that most of us share? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think for sure. Yes. I wish, I think this kind of became more clear after the book was written um, that what happens if you spend a lot of time online is that you really get, uh, you really depart from reality, that you can kind of believe more fantasy. You can construct a very delicate, elaborate fantasy world that as soon as it contacts reality, it starts to shatter like a sandcastle or something. But um, the further you stay, the longer you stay indoors and away from that, the more elaborate it can become. Um, and, you know, I've also heard, uh, there's been a little bit of writing on sort of like newer generations and younger people having difficulty making friends because they're just spending all this time online, right? That it's sort of more difficult to go outside and do that. And I would certainly believe that. But this idea that like, yeah, how, how elaborate your fantasy and your ideas can get when you kind of stay beside the screen. I mean, I think that the 2020 and the pandemic certainly reflected a lot of that too, right? Where you got a lot of people who were stuck indoors, older people, and they got enamored of QAnon, which was a, another 4chan invention, um, or whatever it was, like cryptocurrency or like elaborate collectibles or whatever. Like people, you kind of saw that people, because they were indoors all the time, all of this stuff that kind of diminishes as soon as you go outdoors got very much more real to them, <laughs> right? Um, and sort of like took on this reality that um, uh, is. Would, would the, yeah, the further you get from the screen, the, the more it disappears. So yes, that's certainly like something that happens. I mean, the, I guess the other, the effect I talk about in the book is the fishbowl effect where you get a bunch of people together online. And if one says, oh, I'm an incel, that means that I'm naturally born to be on the bottom of society. You get 10 of those people, they all reinforce each other and suddenly they can't leave. And that happens no matter whether it's like anorexia or suicide, suicidality, all sorts of mental health issues and all sorts of sort of, they kind of convince themselves that it's very real um, because they're together online. There was also something you, 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 you referenced multiple times around, you know, not only identifying with things like being an incel, but a sort of 
a, a general owning uh, that that it seemed like a lot of a lot of these guys had with being autistic, with saying, you know, we we are autistic, and this is this is where we gather, and this is what, in a way, this is kind of like our superpower, while at the same time we feel like we're at the bottom of the of the heap. It's been very surprising, sort of at first. I didn't know exactly who was unfortunate, right? I tried. I had to go and find that out. I had to guess, right? I kind of knew anecdotally, but as I've sort of now been covering it for years and years. Yeah, actually, a significant amount of people on there um, are on the spectrum somewhere, and they and and it's not ironic. They're celebrating their um, uh, autism sometimes, and a lot of the times, it just happens to be that I, I, I only I'm you know I'm not the psychiatrist, but just sort of some meeting some autistic folks that are on uh, that are um, we're on we're on fortune. What happens is, yeah, it's, it becomes sort of an unhealthy place to retreat, that it becomes comfy, it becomes easy to do that, um, and that that's sort of their predilection, that um, um, they sort of cultivate, create this, cultivate that little nice fantasy world that they can live in, and uh, it, and then it becomes more and more difficult to leave it. Um, and yeah, that, that ended up defining 4chan and then sort of just defining online space, right, <laughs> as, as uh, these other, you know, social uh, networks sort of resembled 4chan, uh, you get you get that sort of monetized. You know, the fishbowl effect seems to be this extremely poisoned chalice, which, as you describe, it provides community through, uh, you know, a sense of bonding through identity or circumstance. But the anonymity and the disembodied quality of where people are meeting means that they don't really have any real world responsibility to each other. What's really important is that the connection is maintained within the fishbowl. And that's why, you know, the incel gets punished if they report that they actually had sex or, um, you know, the, the, the person who I, you know, I, we can think of a lot of examples, I suppose, but what's so strange is that, that, that the, the anonymity, the sharing of circumstance and identity, it serves to boost the kind of emotional crisis uh, sense within the spaces that you describe without there being any kind of like social buffering or comfort that, that can provide it or that can let it rest. I guess the metaphor I used um, it was a little bit like junk food, right? Where uh, it turns out if you sell a product that um, is not very satisfying, but sort of gives you like a momentary uh, relief, right? So you, you know, you eat Cheetos, they're not really filling you up, but uh, that actually makes you want to buy more, <laughs> right? In the same way, you kind of sell an ersatz social network, right? <laughs> you sell interaction online, um, and it's momentary relief because it's sort of fake social interaction. It feels good for a moment, but it never really fills you up. So you end up going back and back over and over again. Yeah. And if, and if the content that's being shared or the sort of sub themes within uh, the, the discussion in that space is already sort of hinged upon a disillusionment with the outside world or its betrayals, um, you know, your coverage of, um, the the nihilism that arises in these spaces out of the fact that everybody feels cheated and let down by the promises of 
capitalism and consumerism. Uh, and that not only that, that every time there's an attempt made at countercultural thought or expression, that that immediately gets snapped up into uh, the next round of sales pitching. And so I'm wondering like how it became how you developed your political economy analysis uh, through all of this, because it's really kind of a through note that is so strong. You, you, um, you really sink into this, you know, Gen X sore spot of, wow. Uh, you know, I heard Kurt Cobain sing, you know, here we are now entertain us. And I was driving my car and I had to pull over because I was crying. Uh, and then like six months later, they're selling us fucking sweater, right. right. At, uh, whatever target was back then. Right. Um, so yeah. How did you come to that? I kind of started with the question I was writing the book. Well, I, I had to really answer for this weird culture that fortune had grown out of when it was started in 2003 and then off another site called something awful, which was also very dark and cynical. So, and it, it reflected just the generation that was my generation and our generation, right? Where we were sort of obsessed with being nihilist or sort of having no interest in, uh, in anything, right. That was sort of like the, the cultural, uh, uh, malaise of the, of the rock bands and so forth at the time too. So, uh, and I, I used, um, you know, there were other thinkers who, who wrote on this, like um, uh, Barbara Ehrenreich and, and Zizek and so forth. Like a lot of people write on this similar idea, but I used it here to, to explain this idea that like what had really occurred was that, yeah, there were these countercultural movements, which were about sort of like joy and breaking out of uh, these sort of rigid societal constructs in the 60s and enjoying life and sort of like taking pleasure from life. And but Capitalism and marketing quickly snatched all that up and said, well, let's um, let's sell you that, right? Let's use those ideas to sell you products. And in fact, that's very limiting, right? Then you just uh, get the little joy chopped up when you, you're supposed to only enjoy when you buy something. Um, and so by the 70s and 80s, that marketing culture had just grown exponentially in this sort of post-war economy. And that by that point, uh, by the late 90s, everyone was just sort of jaded because everything had been co-opted over and over again. And the response was, well, I'll just have nothing in my heart, so nothing can be stolen, right? <laughs> like, let's, ju let's just give up. There'll be nothing to be co-opted. Um, and, and that was really the environment out of which, um, uh, you know, Fortune grew up. And then, you know, obviously those dynamics are still happening where they invented memes. And then, of course, the first or internet memes rather. And the first thing when internet memes blow up in 2007, you know, the first person, people that cover them are the wall street journal. And they ask, well, how can we monetize? That? How do we go viral? Uh, right. And then, you know, later on when the alt-right is emerging, uh, they take Pepe the frog uh, on 4chan, which is a kind of a, a meme about being a loser in your mom's basement. And as they see it getting co-opted and sort of used in pop culture and used to sell things, then they coded in racist symbols because the idea is the old 4chan playbook, like the old punk playbook where they say, I'll just cover it in swastikas or anything that will make it poisonous, make the frog poisonous, distasteful to, to some corporation trying to snatch it up and use it. Yeah. And so we have, you know, the, I don't know what you would call it, like a, a repurposing of irony uh, in very weird forms which begins, as you write, as, you know, it's another strategy to uh, evade capture by the marketers, uh, that irony really is 
a way of uh, a generation expressing you're not going to buy me uh, and you're not going to sell me back to myself. And so that twists around into, well, if I can make Pepe completely uh, deplorable to anybody who would want to monetize him, then that actually works for me, regardless of the fact that I've just poured out hate speech onto the internet. It's such a strange and very humanizing, actually, turn of events, because I think that, you know, on the first blush, most people will encounter Pepe with swastikas and and think, oh, uh, the, you know, the swastika Nazi skinhead has entered the room and this is what they believe. But I think the story that you tell is that, no, uh, it's very difficult to know what people actually believe beyond the fact that they are in a form of broken despair. The irony is to be used as a protective measure and then, yeah, as a way to sort of confuse themselves in a sense where if they kind of keep deconstructing everything and then they're left with nihilism, uh, like you say, it just sort of like ends up reinforcing the dynamics they were trying to resist where they, they're in their bedroom playing video games all day, consuming these little products that make them feel good for an instant, consuming the fantasy worlds as a way to make them feel good for an instant and then bad in the long term. Um, and yeah, that was a sort of, that's the sort of duality of Pepe, right? Who now he's returned to his normal meaning of being a sad loser in your basement doing that. Um, but briefly, he took on that sort of like poisonous, toxic version of himself because so many young men were like angry and they wanted to either express that ironically or a little bit, or, um, they sort of got enamored of that radical ideology. And they said, well, you know, if, um, if modern society, if I'm going to be on the bottom, well, I want it all destroyed. And I want, uh, you know, some sort of fantasy, like fascist fantasy from the, from like romantic fantasy, um, to replace it instead. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it, it, those were the strange places, the nihilism of all, right? Because, you know, imagine 10, 20 years on these boards, right? Like, <laughs> how long can you stay there as sort of like the fantasy worlds grow, they get larger, and then the economic and sort of like prospects for young people diminish in the outside world when you combine those two, two things. I mean, you just get more and more people um, kind of living the, the Pepe lifestyle. I, I wanted to say, Matthew, some something clicked in what you were what you were just asking which is i'm not gonna i'm not gonna let you sell me back to myself but i also i also Mm -hmm. heard um i'm not gonna let you continue to link in a marketing via a marketing agenda my innate emotional responses and needs to products and so what i'm gonna do because i can't get away from your marketing that is everywhere that defines the culture that i find myself at the bottom of that tries to sell me on the idea that i can be at the top too if i become a happy shiny fucking consumer is that i'm going to shut off those social emotional responses and coat all of them in a kind of irony that says oh yeah yeah right you're right. Anything matters, especially if those responses uh, revolve around depression, as as we heard uh, Annie Kelly describe last week. That um, it was it was uh, well. It's in your book too, as well, Dale. Uh, that depression quest is at the heart of Gamergate. Uh, Gamergate, or at the beginning of it, anyway. Where here's a game designed by a woman designer uh, that is about. I mean, I'm not quite sure how the game works, but I understand that it's about navigating one's 
depression. And that can't possibly be for anyone else. It can't be monetized by anybody else, not least of which by somebody from Tumblr, but it can't be monetized. It can't become a thing that other people play and that you would have to pay for. Uh, and so this becomes uh, an object and a target of, of incredible hatred uh, and, and online violence. Yes, <laughs> that's a good take. I wonder, I don't even know if Depression Quest was, uh, you had to pay for it. It might have been free, but they might have just resented the idea that, um, they really resented the idea that a woman felt more depressed than that. That was, that, that was the wild, that was how fishbowl they were. Right. What could a woman possibly have to be depressed about, you say, right? Because she can, she can get laid anytime she wants. The, the, yeah, that was the quote from Wizard Chan where, they, where the, it started. Yeah, they felt like that doesn't even make any sense to me because they had never really encountered or met very many women. Yeah. You open your book talking about consumerism with the history of consumerism, and we're talking about what it does to your mental health and soul. But we grew up with newspaper and television advertisements, for example. I worked in both of those, uh, both in commercials and in, and in print newspapers. And there was a lot of market testing. There was a lot of figuring out what people wanted. But algorithms are something altogether different. And have you looked into the effects of what the algorithms and the constant bombardment uh, of of the way consumerism shifted with the internet, how that affected the psychology of the people you were writing about. I tried to touch on this in my book, but it was such a complex subject that I think a lot of good reporting has been done after on it as well, after my book came out. Um, but yeah, that's an excellent point that that's indeed what happened, that uh, that engine for figuring out what people want and sort of setting and calibrating people's desires using advertisement, which is you know, what Marcuse wrote about in the 1960s that I used in my book, right, that analysis of co-optation and so forth. Um, the algorithms, AIs, like these vast computers, uh, all of this computing technology is now devoted more than anything to do that for us, to addict us to our phones and so forth, right? Um, I think the, um, the social dilemma is a doc that came out, very, not, very good um, demonstration of that. Um, yeah. So as that occurs, as sort of that gets more intense. Yeah. I mean, I think for the online spaces, I mean, people just get, um, it's even more and more difficult, right? I think we're all, we all have a little bit of that utaku in our, in a, us now, at least for the most part, like I'm, I, I'm addicted to my phone, right? I can't, I, sometimes I can't put it down because those sort of engines are sort of churning to addict me to these online places to show me ads and so forth. Just for these very ridiculous reasons, like they, they make a, a fraction of a penny when I look or whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it uh, I, I'm not sure I mentioned this term in my book, but you know, there, there was the red pill, which means you sort of, for fortune as you embrace this conservative ideology or far right ideology. And, um, and then they, they talked about the black pill, which is the nihilist pill where they just said, well, I'm just going to give up. I'm just going to embrace, I'm just going to live forever. Um, uh, getting manipulated or like getting manipulated in the fantasy world or whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, yeah. It, and I guess in that sense, sort of like the otakuism does frame a modern problem that everyone has, right. Where now everyone has that little bit of like, well, how much are we going to be in the screen and how much are we going to get tempted to be there? Just to roll back a little bit. Um, can you define 
otaku for our listeners? Sure, yeah. Otaku was a term um, from the 80s in Japan describing this sort of new type of person who was like a super fan, um, who mm-hmm. spent all their time uh, watching anime or sort of uh, uh, obsessed or dropped out of life sometimes or working from home. Uh, really living in these sort of new consumer electronic fantasies, internet, video games, um, that got picked up and imported to the U.S. when sort of similar things were happening in the U.S. And um, and we had, you know, 4chan started, uh, they, they used to meet at a convention in Baltimore that I write about the book called Otakon. Um, and, and now, as we're sort of like in this world where, you know, there's more inequality, young people have a harder time getting ahead, and fantasy worlds and electronic consumer like entertainment products are everywhere and expanding. Now it's that idea is sort of everywhere, right? It's sort of like just part of our social landscape or sociological landscape. You know, speaking of the technology, it marries the disillusionment that you describe in the political economy uh, as you draw on sources like Mark Fisher and Baudrillard to describe the what what the technologies do to our sense of time and narrative and being able to visualize what would happen in the future. Um, I've got a quote here that I'm going to read back to you. Uh, I think you're quoting from Baudrillard. You write, the vague notion that at some point in the 1980s, history took a turn in the opposite direction, he wrote, implies a linear narrative, when in fact, we've fallen out of linear space and into the realm of the screen, screen, quote, where normal time, normal ideas of action and progress no longer apply, unquote. And then you say, progress and forward movement died in the cascading virtual worlds of screens where radical young people find not only their coalitions, but themselves and their sense of reality fragmented in a hall of mirrors. And I remember reading that for the first time, and I know that you're talking about 20 years ago, and it takes my breath away, really, because that is my everyday experience, that I come to this <laughs> office in my basement, and I turn on the screen, and the world flattens into this landscape of, um, you know, boredom and... <laughs> And boredom, but, you know, I don't know, apathetic fascination at the same time. But the main thing that's happening is that the speed of everything that's flashing across it really arrests the fact that, you know, I'm getting a day older and... You the know, world is on fire. Children and the world is on fire, and my and my, and my children need to do something uh, other than deal with my glazed face at the end of the day. And so, so yeah, like I, I just think that that uh, I really appreciate that, and I'm just wondering um, when you felt that in yourself, like when you felt um, the 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 flatness of the screen kind of take time away. I was always very suspicious of of it. I felt like. I've slowly been seduced by it where I used to kind of not really like computers that much, even though I'm sort of nerdy and, and, and like to, to do similar things. Like I would sort of like, I remember, you know, in the mid two thousands, didn't not, not wanting a computer kind of near where my bedroom was. Right. I wanted like in another room. Um, and I wanted to limit my time and sort of slowly, I think probably everyone's experience is that like, 
um, I was very wary of them, but slowly over years, yeah, like you, now they're just everywhere. And now I'm just always got the screen in my face and there are these powerful AI engines like behind, you know, the so- social media that uh, addict us right, <laughs> to looking over and over again. Um, and now everything, of course, comes to the screen. So it's hard to avoid them. Um, but yeah, I was just very enamored of those beautiful ideas like that, that you just quoted from the book from, from Baudrillard and um, Mark Fisher, where they both kind of wrote about this idea that, yeah, at some point it really feels like, yeah, we didn't, we stopped moving forward and just sort of things flattened into a screen virtual world where I remember kind of driving along the highway where I grew up and like, there were all these sort of like crummy little temporary uh, like, you know, 7-Elevens and strip malls. And it just looked cheap and temporary when it got thrown up when I was a kid. And I, and they're still there, right? They're just sort of still there aging, not really built to last, right? Uh, just there. Um, and it feels like, well, why, like I just expected them to, to vanish because they looked so temporary. Um, and that that's what Mark Fisher writes about, um, where it really feels like, you know, ima- you know, imagine like the political change or sort of the societal change between like 1930 and 1960 or something, right? Or 1900 and 1930. And now what happened in the last 20, 30 years, right? <laughs> like the internet a little bit, but politically, right? Has there been like a big shift? Um, so it really feels like a lot of the times we sort of ground to a halt and sort of just retreated into fantasy world or fantasy spaces, yeah. Well, it, it feels like the internet that you're describing is this toxic mirror image of the neoliberal Fukuyama promise that we've we've arrived at the end of history and that capitalism is fulfilling all of our needs in some way and that there's nothing more to really accomplish once sort of American style, you know, consumption is everywhere and free trade is open. Uh, you know, that's what's being said in the political sphere Um and being called the end of history, but then uh, the technology that people are actually using every day is presenting that as a kind of like historical junkyard, which is the other thing that you uh, refer to over and over again is that is that the thing about the flattened screen of history is that uh, people on these boards can find anything from anywhere and they can dredge immediately the deepest, darkest, like psychic junk to the surface and plaster it there because everything just exists in two dimensions. Like you don't have to like reach farther into some archival library to pull out the (laughs) most terrible piece of shit, right? Right. Like you don't have to, you don't have to go to some lab to, to, you know, that's, that's protected in a vault or something like that to get the worst virus. It's all right there for you, (laughs) right? right? Everything is there for you. Things that, that, that pretend to be pleasurable and things that are absolutely horrible. They're all there and they're all there at once. Um, and, and you say the last quote from Baudrillard that I have here is that this creates a, also this feeling that like nobody really owns it either, that, that he described it as a sense of collective irresponsibility, that it's just kind of there and flat and what the hell. Right. Yeah, there's a paralysis that comes with it uh, and certainly a paralysis that comes with being overwhelmed with too much information. And I feel like that was the sort of prevailing part of the sort of prevailing neoliberal idea that like, oh, history has ended or that like, it's too much. It's too complicated. We have managers, we manage it and you have to be a specialist and you, <laughs> right. And you right? You get, you get a little piece, like you can major after, 
you know, uh, 12 years in policy school, then you get to like manage this little fund, but you could never, you know, get the whole picture or say like, no, that whole thing is screwed up. So yeah, you know, that, that, that was part of it. Um, and then, and then, yeah, like the other part, I, I think that you're touching on, which is this idea, like Matt, Matt Fury, there's a film about that I worked on a little bit called feels good men about Matt Fury, the creator of Pepe, the frog and the cooptation of Pepe. And he kind of calls it garbage world where he grew up in this space. Like he's about our age and, you know, grew up like with all this consumers junk. And he worked in a thrift store when he thought, when he came up with Pepe and he's like, there was just all this garbage they sold us. And also it was sort of psychic garbage. Cause it's like, advertising campaigns for movies like hype for certain products or action, whatever. And then all of that became the like chopped up little pieces of garbage that became something awful in 4chan. And they were sort of like lobsters, like getting little pieces floating <laughs> to the bottom and then like fashioning them into memes. And those were memes where you sort of like take all that little bits of garbage that was designed to be garbage and is designed to be thrown away and forgotten. Like it had one use, which was to convince someone to buy a product in like 1989, Yeah, but it's like stuck in everyone's heads. And so what can we do? All we can do is like have a little bit of power by like refashioning it into a dumb joke. It's also the power of the scavenger, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. You can repurpose it. Now you own it in a sense. Yeah. Has Jordan Peterson entered the chat? <laughs> now that we have a lobster <laughs> reference. Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Ultimate. Yeah. He's the ultimate <laughs> lobster. Yeah. The ultimate garbage world. He's like the biggest one down there. You yeah. seem to have a special disdain for Jordan Peterson. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I probably spent too much time, like, in retrospect now, all of these, uh, which it was it were already clear to some extent when I finished the book, but the sort of the what happens in the alt-right and the far-right spaces is that these, the people that get elevated are sometimes the stupidest ones. So that means that, that it, that's why they get elevated, but that means they only have a shelf life of like a year or two and then new ones take their place. Um, so now there's like a new set of them. So, um, but yeah, so I spent some time like sort of just tearing apart some of these foolish figures that were at first Gamergate um, sort of hucksters and, and grifters on 4chan or sort of, adjacent to 4chan, and then they became the first leaders of the alt-right. Um, uh, yeah, and then, of course, yeah, like one of them, Baked Alaska, who, who was a Gamergate YouTuber. Then he was the headliner at Charlottesville, and then he led the crowd um, at the Q, at on January 6th um, in the Capitol. There are your dots to connect. I wanted to ask you about Gamergate. Uh, you talk about how prior to the Gamergate controversy, which was in 2014, there's this gradual progression on 4chan from anti-corporatism and rejection of mainstream values, as we've discussed, into this hyper-competitive masculinity, explicit misogyny and racism. And then this is combined with organized raids onto other often like sweet and innocent message boards, as well as the rise of that much more female-dominated website, Tumblr, which maybe we'll talk a little bit more about later. But can you can you just say a little more about Gamergate? Because not everyone knows about it and how it perhaps represented this political turning point in terms of the the demographic that you cover. You know, like so much, so many other things that we're talking about, it really was sort of like this piece of cultural garbage that everyone thought would be forgotten, but turns out to be very relevant now in retrospect, uh, where uh, as 4chan, so anonymous, a lot of the leaders were arrested in 2012 so there was sort of on 4chan, there was this anonymous a movement called Anonymous that was 
pro um, sort of far right and sort of very activist. And after after that got shattered by 2014. Wait, did you just say anonymous was pro far right? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, sorry, no, pro far, pro uh, left. Let's correct that. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, not 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 pro far. Right. Yeah, kind of pro left, a pro libertarian sometimes. Yeah, after that got shattered in 2012. By 2014, there's sort of a new set of of like far right extremists on 4chan and, and young men and incels sort of dropped out of life. Um, and they became uh, obsessed with a video game developer named Zoe Quinn, and uh, who uh, was also to some extent a 4chaner. She dated someone who was on 4chan and, and, and that sort of jilted ex started complaining about her a ton. And they, uh, that sort of created like an anonymous style, like old school trolling campaign against her, where all of these young men who were really angry at their lot in life, angry at women, uh, because they really felt like they had no uh, romantic success, all let it out on her and sort of targeting her for a year. Um, This spawned sort of a group of like adjacent YouTubers who promoted themselves. Um, And this eventually coalesced into a political movement where all these young men on 4chan decided, well, because I really resent women and I really resent life and sort of modern life and feminism, well, I'm gonna become a hyper conservative traditionalist. um, That wants this world wiped away, this modern world wiped away. And then, you know, in the past, I would have been assigned a wife or I would have had a place in society, um, sort of really a fantasy. Um, and that, that just becomes the all right, um, out of, out of that movement. Yeah. And Anita Sarkeesian is part of that story. Yeah. Yes. Uh, she was also targeted. She had a, um, uh, like a YouTube channel that was sort of critiquing games in a feminist way. It was like very light. It was like, you know, uh, why does the why does Mario rescue the princess mm-hmm. rather than the mm-hmm. other way around? Right, but that was enough, right? Because these young men felt like, well, video games are my last line of retreat. They're the only thing I have. I go into video games where I experience this sort of fantasy where women love me and it's misogynistic, and 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 they felt like, oh well, if a feminist critic is attacking them, and suddenly I don't get video games where I get to do that. Well, that's the last thing that I have. Um, really kind of delusional and out there, but that was sort of the, what game makers had been selling gamers for a long time, um, kind of cultivating that idea. And so yeah. as that as that shift starts to happen in terms of the alt-right emerging, uh, now we're approaching the 2016 election and, and how to define the alt-right is often a point of confusion. I like that you described three subgroups. You said young right-wingers on the boards who are fascists, racists, and betas. Older Nazis and street brawlers like those on the Daily Stormer, and oddball suit intellectuals like Jared Taylor and Richard Spencer, who actually coined the term alt right. I'm curious to what extent you think the players within the Trump 2016 campaign were deliberately seeking to encourage the troll army on the chans, and to what extent the support on the chans was based on actual alt-right beliefs versus this like absurdist nihilism and the entertainment value of just subverting, you know, having some power to subvert the political process. Right. So to the first question, there are substantive connections, but with the Trump campaign, you know, I think they were flying by the seat of their pants. So the extent to which they anticipated or knew that these subgroups would would appear or help them or exist probably very little but when they appeared they did use them particularly uh steve bannon uh when he um ran breitbart uh hired milo yiannopoulos who was uh just sort of like this 
bizarre blogger, right-wing blogger. Uh, and Milo Yiannopoulos started writing about Gamergate, and he became sort of a Gamergate figure. And so through that, Bannon learned about Gamergate. He learned about 4chan and 8chan and said, oh, well, they get mad about Gamergate. Well, I can turn them on to Trump then. That was sort of the direct quote in the book. And he did do that before he became Trump's campaign manager. And then probably after he gave my, Milo Yiannopoulos um, a lot of money through Robert Mercer, this, this eccentric billionaire, to, to go around on a bus and, and like kind of uh, activate this coalition. Um, so there were there were real efforts to activate it. How much of a role it played is sort of, you know, it's almost impossible to say. It's more like they, 4chan always has set the cultural tone. We get all these words from 4chan, like all these terms and all these memes. And they were sort of like doing that, right? They were setting the sort of cultural landscape that, um, and spreading a lot of misinformation that made into the news that helped Trump's campaign. Yeah, and so the, it's almost like the campaign accidentally stumbles into like, oh, we can use this. And it turns out a lot of them are Nazis. Well, we'll just kind of ignore that and just try to fold it all in and, and exploit it as best we can, right? Right. Yes, exactly. Like they, I mean, they were just, they, yeah, they didn't want to make that distinction. And there was a lot of crypto fascism going on where people yeah. who were clearly fascists and Nazis knew very very adroitly to disguise yeah. that. Now, now, at the same time, as you briefly cover in the book, Tumblr is emerging, and it seems to me as a kind of parallel uh, digital lab experiment, right, to 4chan and 8chan, where this demographic, though, is much more involved in agonizing over moral questions and political identity in much more earnest ways. And what becomes foundational here, you reference, is the existentialist and perhaps to some extent later postmodern idea that existence precedes essence, right? So we all get to choose who we are. But on Tumblr, as will start to be the case elsewhere on social media, concrete moral codes emerge as gospel. And you write, once a stance has been decided, users rush to echo the original conclusion and condemn those who disagree. Uh, and then as exemplified most famously by a YouTube video from the Yale Halloween controversy, professors at universities who were used to a kind of Socratic debate style were wholly unprepared for this new approach to moral philosophy and political activism. And it seems to me this is sort of on the other side of this whole story, right? What Can you describe, just if you like, what happens when Tumblr goes to college? <laughs> sure, yeah. So there's this other yeah, social media site called Tumblr, which was sometimes a rival to 4chan that more uh, women and young, young women on it than, than men. It was sort of artsy, kind of interesting site. But it had sort of developed its own ideology, unlike the 4chan nihilistic, sort of everything is permitted and everything should be offensive and, and there are no rules in a sense. Um, Tumblr started developing this very sort of rigid set of values where just because of the way the structure of the site worked, where you could sort of uh, always add something, always addend to a post. So every, instead of 4chan, got, every post would be deleted almost instantly. So that sort of framed the nihilism. But on Tumblr, the post never got deleted. You would always, another person could always say something. So it sort of like became this like rabbinical scroll or like text <laughs> where people started like annotating it and people would agree, no, this is right and this is right. And, and there was a very sort of like complicated idea about identity because it was teenagers. So sort of like that was the big issue. Like, what is my identity? Who am I? Um, and a lot of that politics now just got kind of folded into uh, the newest version of, 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 of left-wing thought and uh, politics. So that is all still with us, even though Tumblr is now defunct. We still have these sort of same phenomenons where 
you know, sometimes the, the right kind of like complains about cancel culture. I sort of write about it in my book, like this idea of pylons, just where the idea that like someone will post something and then there is a very tempting idea on social media where everyone can then pile on and say like, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And it's, and it's delightful. Uh, it can get you a kick and then addicts you to social media. But of course it's in the, in the end sort of absurd, but um, that idea that like uh, social media sort of allows for this sort of strange, like moralistic fantasy role play. Um, uh, and also this idea that like the cultivated, the way that social media works, where it cultivates this sort of little world for yourself about your identity and who you are and your choices and what you get to pick. Um, that structure of social media then became sort of a, a political structure, a, polit a set of political ideas. Um, so, you know, some of those ideas uh, I agree with and some of them are interesting. Um, I don't, I, I don't dismiss all that up at hand, but I, I find it just fascinating that like, it was built this way, in my opinion, through through social networks. I have two related questions following on what Julian has brought up. And the first is kind of technical, which is, as you're describing the genesis and the implications and the political shifts that characterize Gamergate and, and where it goes and what it inspires. Um, I'm thinking about the harder turn described by Annie Kelly last week uh, towards, you know, quite violent misogyny that starts to show up in pickup artist sites and boards that starts to show up in, in, you know, on wizard net and, and in incel uh, spaces. Um, you know, part of my brain wants to make causal connections between these things, but in, in calendar terms, it's probably not like that. Am I right? Is it, is it like Gamergate is swelling in one space and is that parallel to other misogynistic discourses and then they sort of find each other or how does, how do you think about that, that landscape and, and, is it more about correlation than, you know, this guy moves from here to here? I mean, we have Baked Alaska, who actually does move from here to here. But in most cases, we're talking about groups that are bumping up against each other and influence each other, right? Right. I mean, I think it's fair to make that causal connection. Um, you know, I kind of tell the story from the lens of 4chan. Um, but obviously, there are many other sites at this time um, sometimes maybe for deeper underlying sociological reasons, but maybe just also because there's a lot of spread of information on the internet where, you know, parallel to, um, you know, the boards on 4chan and 8chan at the time, the other, the other copycat sort of worse 4chan um, that were devoted to incels and so forth, you know, they would visit um, um, the Reddit boards that were, or, and the pickup artist boards and YouTubers, would start to realize, hey, there's this huge audience on 4chan. If I just sort of talk about the same thing and same thing with these pickup artists, a lot of whom were trying to make yeah. money. So they they just sort of realized the audience was there. And of course it was growing demographically for all sort of the like sociological and economic reasons that we kind of were already talking about. So um, yeah, it, it all kind of, uh, it did sort of happen in parallel and was related. So, you know, for example, uh, uh, WizardNet, you know, there was a wizard Chan, um, and those people went, went to both, right. And wizard Chan, uh, kind of predated a Chan and, uh, and it was where Gamergate began and then it moved to a Chan. 
and yeah, I'm sure some of those same users were on these other spaces and Reddit and the other the other wizard sites and so forth. And and as the groups coalesce and uh, on that side of the ledger, they share this sense of uh, nihilism and perpetual disillusionment. Um, one of the things that really stood out about your description of Tumblr was that it really focused, and this became a point of resentment, on the possibility of uh, hope as being embodied or potentially manifested through an investment in one's uniqueness and in one's identity. So all of the things that, you know, the, the 4chan user had already sort of discounted as not being a part of their sphere of possibility anymore. Over on Tumblr, there's this promise that's additive, as you say, like people can continue adding to uh, the the posts. And it made me, it makes me think of how, you know, uh, you speak in the book, but also a little bit earlier in this conversation about how you can't remain nihilistic forever. Uh, you said nature abhors a, a vacuum. And it makes a lot of sense to me that the thing perhaps that the 4chan user turns towards when they see this other demographic grabbing on to social meaning is they grab onto social meaning, but it's from the opposite side of the spectrum in the form of fascism. Uh, and, you know, I was really moved by your description of how, um, in, you know, out of nihilism, uh, a fascist order or ideology is able to imagine getting ahead in life. Uh, the quote is here, uh, by removing someone else or a whole group of people that are above you in the hierarchy. And so Tumblr becomes targeted by 4chan in general terms, but then the quest for meaning within the 4chan world takes on this very romantic and uh, sort of heroic imagery. Um, and I, and I, just, I just found that fascinating. I'm wondering if the, you know, not to, I, I want to be careful about this, I, I don't want to suggest that, you know, the the hopeful world or more hopeful world represented by Tumblr provoked a fascist response in 4chan. But I'm wondering whether there's a dialectic going on where they actually have something uh, that the boys realize they want, but they're going to create it on their own terms. Yeah, I think for sure. There's certainly like this very strange dialectic between those two sites, right? Like, as you say, it's like almost the exact opposite, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, um and, and yes, I think a lot of the times the campaigns on 4chan and 8chan were motivated by this sort of intense jealousy where they really felt like, oh, here's someone who's figured it out in a way that feels okay. And, um, and so I guess the calculus in their mind is like, oh, actually, no, they haven't. It sucks. And I, I want to get, you know, I want to attack them. Um, that's not a real answer. Um, and yeah, I mean, it... <laughs> In some ways, yeah, it, it was certainly the same problem, right? It's funny how it kind of drills very deep very quickly and, you're, and you kind of get into these philosophical issues about like, well, what do I care about? Or like, what is my identity going to be? Or like, who am I? Or like, what do I actually want? Um, and yeah, I kind of write about in the book where um, for a lot of people that I, I spoke to who were 4chaners and sort of fell into this world, it, you know, it, it's like you're drowning in the nihilism and then, and, 
And a lot of times what hyper-conservatism or, or fascism offers is this sort of like a very rote set of values, like an off-the-rack suit. And so I put it in the book where you can just sort of be like, well, all traditional values. Like it's like a lot of them become Catholic or whatever too, right? Like this idea that you can just adopt a value system. And suddenly, you know, that means that if you believe in something, then you will, might, you know, like you have this set of rules that that means you – you haven't given up and you're starting making your bed and, and working out or whatever. And, and that's sort of how they describe it. But of course, like in the end, it's so naive that it backfires because it's, um, you know, it, it, it sells them. So it's just a different form of fantasy that's so divorced from reality and divorces them from other people because it's so angry that they just end up um, falling back into the, to the black pill from the red pill, from the like back to the nihilist. There's something really interesting there too that you talked about and, and and you said something earlier Matthew about uh you know incels being punished if they uh if they had sex and and I I'm not sure that's exactly right because I, I got the impression Dale that there was this sort of as the self-improvement kind of masculine piece started to started to take over there was a sense of like boards where if people graduated and everyone was like oh I'm, I'm so sorry to see you go but congratulations go have a wonderful life or like you're no longer a wizard because you've now had sex but right. you're a fucking hero man yeah both both definitely occurred yeah like um, uh, uh, Frederick Brennan who uh, I still speak with yeah he's um, uh, who's just grown like a ton and, and he's the founder of Atrian um, that Incredible. happened story yeah right yeah he um you know he he moderated wizard chan and, and was sort of drank the the incel kool-aid he believed it and then yeah he got kicked off because eventually uh he did lose his virginity and it was a blow to him right he knew he had to leave <laughs> because they were gatekeeping but yeah other times you know they'd be more like the softer boards that that was like the uh, most hardcore uh, board but the one on 4chan you say oh well i'm leaving i'm really trying to break away from this i'm trying to break out and they'd be like okay great that's so good because we know that this sucks and we know that like this is not healthy for us yeah and even though it's being sold to us cynically by these pickup artists and and men's rights types of people there is some of this ideology coming in of like we can improve ourselves we can be men again and and we can revert to some kind of fascist romantic fantasy of how in the past we would have been swinging a battle axe and you know having the 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 most beautiful woman as our wife because we're entitled to that but now we live in this godforsaken time right. where we don't get that yeah and mirrors the video games yeah. they play right it is like just exactly like the, the like fantasy video games, right? Yeah, and, and the, the thing that, that kept striking me that I just wanted to mention right now because it's all the way through this conversation for me is the social experiment quality of all of this within, within which, even though it's not really intended, a sort of recapitulation of the history of moral and political philosophy ends up happening when you have a group of people together, right? People are asking these questions like you're saying. And, and even if you're starting from a place of nihilism, that's a position. And then you start sketching out, well, what does it mean to be a nihilist? And then you have a set of principles and a meaning to believe in, right? Yeah. And, and we talk a lot about the negative aspects of 4chan, but of course, 4chan was a super creative place. And in the beginning, um, probably more than other times, but it was also this place where all this discourse took place, just like on Tumblr where, yeah, they would have all these teens and kids and people trying to figure it out. So there would be philosophical discussions and like literature boards and, you know, the talk of philosophy on 4chan is still probably, you know, the, the, the boards have diminished a ton, but through the years that was um, a big part of it. 
we're just figuring out, well, you know, what, what is the value system? What is the proper one? Last question from me. Uh, given that you, you cover in the book figures like Steve Bannon and Milo Yiannopoulos, Frederick Brennan, as you were just saying, Jim and Ron Watkins, the, er, uh, the emergence of early QAnon on the chance. What's it like to have written such an unlikely prelude, and I think very insightful prelude that not a lot of people are hip to about the 2016 election, published then in 2019, only to find that this was in fact now a prelude to a longer and much stranger arc that intensifies all the way up to the Capitol insurrection this year? Um, I was surprised. <laughs> I have to say I was, <laughs> I was secretly hoping in my heart of hearts that I would write this book and all of this would become beautifully irrelevant and I would, yeah. I could just move on to writing about other topics. Instead, the opposite occurred. Yep. Um, you know, when I, when, you know, when I wrote the book, there were reviews that came out that like, Oh, is it really that important? There's like 4chan this relevant. And I was like, I really <laughs> hope they're right. <laughs> like, yeah. I hope that like I've overemphasized this nonsense. Yeah. Uh, but instead QAnon, which was a 4chan invention, um, invention of the owners of HN, Jim and Ron Watkins that, um, or rather, you know, that they, yeah, they ran it, um, for the longest time. Um, and, uh, yeah, all the characters I write about in the book and that was very much played a big role in January 6th, um, and, and storming the Capitol. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, no one was more surprised than myself. Wow. I, I guess I, I guess I was just more optimistic. I was really hoping that, you know, I know that the underlying problems were there, right? That, uh, you know, the sort of sociological and political ideas that spawn Trump, they, they really haven't been addressed in a, in a meaningful way. Um, but I kind of thought it would just take a different form, like a different disgusting form, not, not the Chan form anymore, but how, I guess there was really a long life, um, to these like 4chan memes yeah. and, and the figures who were kind of behind the sites. Cause yeah, I mean, in the weeks leading up to, to January 6th, Ron Watkins, you know, was being retweeted um, by Trump all the time. <laughs> like he joined the legal team. That's someone who, you know, was running HN. Who could have predicted that? <laughs> if anyone could have, you could have. And you were surprised. <laughs> well, Fre Frederick, who, uh, you know, who was, was running a, um, uh, running HN before, or founded HN before he sold it to Jim and Ron Watkins. He was very insistent. He figured out before other folks that Jim and Ron Watkins were, were behind it. And, and we did collaborate on a piece, uh, a reply all piece, where I we were the first to point the finger at, you know, to say who QAnon is, to say that it's uh, Ron Watkins, essentially, and Jim Watkins. Um, and I think, I think Colin, probably the filmmaker who made Q Into the Storm, also knew at that point, he just and probably figured it out before us. Um, but his, his work took a little while to come out, but yeah. Um, so I guess I predicted some of it, but yeah. Julian just brought up some of the figures that end up rolling this ball towards the white house. And, uh, in episode 42 on our podcast, we had Kalen Robertson join us. Uh, and he talked about being red pilled at the moment where he sees Milo Yiannopoulos and McInnes, Gavin McInnes kissing each other, uh, ironically outside of the pulse nightclub after the massacre. Um, and uh, you have this description from late in your book that I think pulls so many of your threads together all at once. Uh, 
You write, Yiannopoulos and McInnes were the final demented regurgitation of youth counterculture, which had passed through a 50-year-long digestive track of corporate co-optation. The weird creatures that emerged were Frankenstein's monsters, stitched together abominations, abhorred by humanity, and holding together pieces of themselves that would never mend because they were already dead. Freakishly, McInnes was a punk venerating the square suburban values of the 1950s. Even weirder, Yiannopoulos channeled 1980s gay counterculture to teach hordes of young straight men who couldn't find girlfriends that they should give up on life and play video games all day. So question number one is like, how much opium did you have to smoke to put all of those fucking things together? Because... Uh, it's that's that characterizes the book is like you are describing the uh, infrastructure of what ends up becoming a huge movement of conspiracy theories, and you are doing it with a lot of pins in the corkboard, and it doesn't really feel like corkboard guy, but the the number of of things that you have to bring together. Um, is, is amazing. And I guess it's reflective, too, of the internet itself. And I'm wondering if that has kind of influenced your writing style is you're, you're, you have, you have had to look at everything at once. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I think the only thing I was high on was, uh, <laughs> um, just having to think about fortune for like three years. Right. <laughs> um, just, uh, I see my job as taking all like this sort of endless fire hose of information and, and trying to organize it into a simple sort of elegant set of ideas that actually makes sense, right. To sort of contextualize it. So that was the idea just to try and take, discard the irrelevant stuff, put the relevant stuff in and, and sort of it, at least maybe it's wrong, but at least try and present a system that says, Hey, maybe we can just understand all of this elaborate, nonsense this way we'd sort of step back and it just looks like this shape right <laughs> rather than just like a bunch of gobbledygook um so that that was the idea um uh, and of course i guess you know it's up to the viewer to, to decide if i succeeded i tried to of course you know meet both and talk to both yiannopoulos and, and mcginnis uh yiannopoulos i could not he snuck off when i was like you know like they wouldn't talk to me but i i, I did get i did go to an event where they were both there um, and McGinnis would talk to me. He wanted to fight me. <laughs> One thing you realize about him is that he's very short. Really? Really? How short, how short is Gavin McGinnis? I'm, I'm like five, eight and he's probably like five, three. Yeah. I was looking down. You're kidding. Yeah. I was looking down at him. He's like a Tom Cruise dude. Yeah. Okay. And Got I, it. and you know, so it was ridiculous. Like I laughed. Right. And he was very mad that I, <laughs> I laughed. And, Oh my God. I had no idea that, that I got to process that. Yeah. It was, right. Unfortunately, after the book had gone to print, I would have written it in there and then it's not really relevant enough to write. And like, I maybe, but yeah, like he was dressed in all white. And then I, I spoke to a friend who knows him personally from years ago. And he said, yeah, Gavin dresses in all white because he thinks it makes him look big. <laughs> oh man. And then afterwards his proud boys apologized to me. They're like, Oh, sorry. He gets like that. <laughs> foolish characters right um so i you know it's like how do you make sense of people so ridiculous that you know that that were so successful at being so ridiculous well but you also humanize the landscape by showing them as being individuals who are also in 
you know, um, manipulating uh, a vast number of of people, um, you you end on this really kind of haunting note of hope uh, in a way where you you write that the internet has provided a means by which nastiness can be excavated and collected in a reservoir, but the font of all that unhappiness is not human beings, but their context. 4chan is not the waste byproduct of some natural capacity of the mind to be weird and cruel. Rather, it's the byproduct of cruel societal artifices. Our culture's emphasis on materialism, entertainment, culture and self-gratification and I suppose to the extent that McInnes is going to people like McInnes and influencers and grifters like that are going to manipulate those very those very properties um, we just we can't forget the human beings that are you know at the center of their thrall yes yeah for sure yeah yeah I mean that yeah that sentiment really came out of this idea that like a lot of the times that was how it was considered that oh people are toxic that's why the internet's toxic this experiment on the internet, well, turns out people are just so terrible that that's why we can't have this like free exchange of information. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's something else that's going on. <laughs> I think it's these other sort of problems that are infecting the internet. The hardest part to listen to, and I mentioned earlier when we started about misogyny being an underpinning, was when you were talking about Gamergate and you were actually reading the text of what was being said, some of which I've heard, but some of which I've not, and how just plain disgusting it is. And what happens when a group of boys who have no actual experience talking to women get together and think that they might be thinking. Uh, and, and as I'm listening to this, I'm realizing you spent so much time in these spaces. How was your mental health after spending so much time there? <laughs> oh, it was terrible. Oh, God. Yeah, it was like, you know that scene in Harry Potter where Gandalf, uh, Gandalf <laughs> where, where Dumbledore has to has to drink all the poison to like get the key? Uh, I kind of felt like that, where I was like, all right, I'll just keep drinking the poison. Yeah, it, it took me a while. I was kind of like... After the book, I was like, all right, it'll be over. I'll, I'll just not write about this anymore. But then I sort of reached a point where um, I guess I got um, a little inoculated to it. Um, now I just sort of accept it as now it doesn't sort of uh, it, it, it doesn't really affect me as much. And not, not in sort of a numb way, but, you know, Matthew, sort of you were talking about just in like, you know, the, the, the idea that part of the process is sort of like, ripping away the surface you get to like the kind of like diminished human beings that are actually there like the actual sort of like just the, the, the very human figures that are kind of behind all this right like uh, like Derek like the, the idea that like you know those people that wrote that you know when I finally got to interviewing enough of them like a lot of them are really sad young men who some of them are really a bad have really extreme autism where they really have mental health issues or they're just in a terrible place in their life um, and a lot of them will never really sort of climb out of it. And then, but it's also been heartening to see uh, a lot of, or some of them at least, I think, you know, Frederick among them, where a lot of them just learned. <laughs> a lot of them, it was a phase in their life. They were in this sort of quavering, quivering identity crisis. Um, and they realized, well, um, I'm going to kind of change into something else or it's like not working. Dale, one thing that I want to thank you for as we close up is that I have two sons. Uh, they're five and eight now, and you use the word inoculation 
um, in your last comment. And what I'm really happy about is that at a certain point, I'll be able to hand them this book as a tour guide through this particular part of uh, internet and world history. And uh, it'll be informative, it'll be empathetic. uh, And I think that it will allow them, it will help them see that their online relationships are grounded in a kind of historical materialism and relational reality that they have to respect and take care of. And um, I think that's like really, really important for uh, young men of the future to have. So I just wanted to to thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you guys so much. Uh, your questions were just, yeah, so thoughtful and nuanced. And yeah, I, I'm just delighted that you yeah, you know, thank you so much for taking my work so seriously and thinking about it so much that, uh, you know, that's what, what else could a writer ask for, really? 